Resuming our series on how to love your family, today I want to talk about children, the fact that children proceed from parents. And so we're going to be talking about the role of parents as well as the role of children and how the family is to express what we've said is the big goal, the big picture, which is loving communion. The family is a community. It is a communion. Now, it's an extension of the church communion because if it's a Christian family, we're members of the church. That's the big family. And then when we go to our house, that's a smaller outpost of the church. And it also is to live in communion. Just like we have communion here, we go to our house and we're to do the same thing. In fact, a lot of the purpose of what we're doing here on a Sunday morning and worship is to go through the liturgy so that we, we have a framework an understanding of how life is supposed to work at our house. Now, a lot of times people don't make that connection, that what we're doing here has anything to do with what we do there, but we should. That is critical. Otherwise, what we're doing here is uh, we become really atomistic and not unified in our thought about life. So everything's connected, and since we're to our chief end is to glorify God then that's not just true when we're in a worship service, that's true when we're at our house. We should be worshiping God at all times and in all of our relationships. And so if that doesn't describe your home, then some things need to change, and they need to change immediately. Not next week. You need to go away today with some idea of something that needs to improve and change. Now some might say, well, we're not even close well, then I hope you'll return from home, turn home today from church and make big changes in your family because this is not optional work. Things, don't stay, if things won't stay the same. They will either get better or they will get worse. And so if your family isn't moving clearly in the direction of being a loving communion, then it is moving toward being a place of selfish conflict. There are struggles and difficulties in a house full of sinners. There will always be some tears. In fact, there should be some tears. But if at the end of the week, as you look back, there hasn't also been a lot of joy, a lot of fellowship, a lot of communion, a lot of love, then something is wrong. And as you're evaluating that, the place to start with that evaluation is not with the other guy. Well, if they would do this, then I would do that. No, your obligation and my obligation is to please God. Am I pleasing God? Am I honoring God in my attitude, with my mouth, with how I interact with everybody and how I handle conflict? Am I gracious? Am I kind? Do I bear the fruit of the Spirit? What am I doing to contribute to the communion of this place? Not what is everybody else not doing, how are they messing things up, but what am I doing to do what God wants done at this house? It is true for husbands and wives, fathers and mothers, and also for children. So the question is, how are you contributing to loving, self-sacrificing, communion. So um, I think I have 
talked about this before, but I want to mention it, um, that some years ago when the ships lived with us for a brief period of time as they were transitioning here to Nacogdoches, it seems brief now, it was about 10 months, but it was actually brief. We actually, this is, I, I never thought I'd say this when we agreed to it, and we willingly agreed to it. I was, we suggested that, offered that. Uh, I thought, boy, you know, this is going to be tough. But when they were ready to move and leave, we weren't ready for them to. We were glad they were there. We knew we were going to miss having them there because things had gone so well. Now, I don't attribute that to the fact, uh, to any idea that we have all reached uh, perfect sanctification, but we did do some things that I think really helped foster loving communion. First was recognizing that if we didn't proactively do something, then we were going to have problems. Um, I don't think Rachel would disagree with this. I mean, growing up, we had more than one occasion of butting heads. Uh, largely because we're pretty much alike. And um, that doesn't always work so well. But knowing that, then the way to address that is to acknowledge it and to say, what are we going to do to prevent those kind of problems? Now, I think they're obviously growing up helps being adults. That's, that's one thing. But when you put that many people in a house and a lot of little kids, there's a lot going on. And so one of the things we did that I think was extremely helpful, and I may have mentioned this already, but I would recommend it to you, is we had a weekly meeting. Did I mention that already here? Uh, so I, I won't go into all that again, but that weekly meeting where we sat down and I began as the head of the house and said, what can I do to make things better for you? Or what am I doing that makes life harder for you? How can I improve how can I make this, I didn't use this language at the time, but I would now, how can I make this a more loving communion? And then we went around the room and each person had got to ask the same question of the rest who were there, it was the adults, the four of us. And there was the opportunity to make a recommendation or to offer a complaint. Uh, always, uh, it was with a good attitude, we discussed our upcoming schedule for the week, which was helpful kind of know what was coming in the, in the week ahead. And uh, what happened is not only did we have that weekly opportunity to commune and to communicate and to resolve conflicts if there were any or any that were budding, uh, it also then got us in the habit of that conversation so we didn't necessarily have to wait for the weekly meeting. So if something came up on a Tuesday, then we're used to talking to each other about it Instead of getting upset about it or letting it simmer and brew and become something, we dealt with it while it was small. And after, in 10 months, um, they're sitting here as witnesses. They can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm not aware of any conflict, any kind of quarrel that we had in 10 months. I consider that nearly miraculous, um, given, given me uh, as, and my own issues so the point is having some kind of proactive thing, and I don't think you need to just do that if somebody's moving back in with you. You already have people there, and they're already living in that house. So having that opportunity to communicate and heads of households to set the bar of leadership there is really helpful. Now, parents, we've talked before about, let me just say this, husbands, 
remember, are to reflect the image of Christ. Women, wives, are to reflect the image of the church. And parents, God the Father, is our model. Remember, the Trinity created us, male and female, after his own image. And his image includes loving communion. The Trinity is an eternal loving communion. And so in the various economies of the Trinity, the roles of the Trinity, in this case, the Father, he sets the model of what parents should do. Fathers and mothers alike, husbands and wives, are one in regard to their children in particular. And that's how the Bible says children are to view their parents. Honor your father and your mother. They are unified in their mission, they should be, of raising godly children for the Lord. And so God the Father is the model for earthly fathers as the head of the community that we call the family. He begets the Son and breathes forth the Spirit, endowing them with everything, So there's perfect unity or community. They are one. Jesus could say, he who has sent me, excuse me, he who has seen me has seen the Father. There was that much unity. It's as though the Son and the Spirit, excuse me, it is through the Son and the Spirit that the Father is made known to the world, right? His glory is seen in their greatness, The Father loves the Son, and therefore the Son manifests or shows the love of the Father. And so it all begins with the Father. The Son responds to the Father by giving love back, and the relationship is mutual. So John 17, 1-5, Jesus spoke these words, lifted up his eyes to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son also may glorify you, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. You see this total identity and connection of the Father and the Son. This loving communion of self-sacrifice in the Trinity is the model for the Christian family and the relationship between parents and children. Now, just to comment again, remember as we come to the Bible, what we have set before us is the ideal. This is what it should be. Now, we recognize that because of sin, we fall short, but God has also provided a remedy for sin. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You can repent a a million times and start over and do, do what's right next. So we understand that our families are broken because of sin, but God has provided the remedy for sin in the gospel And that's what growing in grace, growing to be like Christ, that's what a Christian family is about, is repairing what's broken and beginning to do what's right, to do it better, to reflect, to to aim toward this ideal. Paul writes in Ephesians, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. 
Fathers, we are called to imitate our heavenly Father toward our children. In fact, that is how we love our children. Love is not just, you know, having a good feeling toward somebody or me deciding all, you know, by myself how to love someone, but I'm to love my children the way God says that I'm to love them. So, for example, if I don't discipline my children, and the Bible tells me to, God has told me to do so, the Bible says that I not only don't love my children, I actually hate my children. I don't care about their future. I don't care about their righteousness. If I don't present them the gospel, if I don't do certain things toward them, then I am not loving them. I have to love them the way God says to. Your love, fathers, should be invasive, pressing, imposing, and shaping your family. You're in charge. That doesn't mean you're a tyrant. In fact, you're going to be gracious and kind and tender, affectionate, but you are going to be invasive. You're going to be involved. You're going to be insistent that God's standards be implemented in the lives of your children. This is precisely what many men hate, which is consistent, faithful love or sacrifice. But godly love sacrificially fulfills its responsibility. My responsibility is to do what? Raise godly children. Who do I owe that responsibility to, or that duty to? Is God. It's what He requires of me as His son, that I now do that for my sons and daughters, my children. Fatherhood and love are expansive. The Father sent His Son into the world to save the world. When He ascended, He sent the Holy Spirit to expand His work even more. And so sons and daughters are called to take the loving communion of their homes, which they have seen and heard in their fathers and mothers, and take it out into the world. That's the calling. This is not, uh, if this is not the daily mission of your household, if, if your daily mission is making sure, um, if it's only making sure that the meals are prepared and the clothes are washed and the chores are done and, you know, athletic practice and school and homework, if those are all the things that your whole life revolves around and you've lost sight of what your real calling is, what the big picture is, which is to raise godly children that love Jesus Christ, that, that have a loving communion in your family, a relationship with you, and then they expand that out. If you've lost sight of that, then uh, it, you're, it's time again to make some adjustments. You're missing the entire point. Love begins with God and the source is the Father. Apart from the Son, there is no Father. With no Father, there's no Son, and so the identity of each person of the Trinity is tied to the others. Parents, you must remember that one of the primary reasons that God made you husband and wife, that is, He made you one, one flesh, was in order for you to give Him godly offspring. 
not just offspring. Not just well-behaved children, but people who love God, who glorify God as their chief end, who, who enjoy God as their chief end. And not just for yourselves, remember, it's for Him. Loving communion must be central if that's to be accomplished. So parents, you are little creators, which is part of your image-bearing function. This is how you, just like God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God extended his, this loving communion through creation, you're going to do the same. That's what you're called to do, is to imitate Him by extending your love for each other as a husband and wife. And I think it's appropriate that in that intimate relationship between husband and wife, it's called making love. And in, in, the, in that process, we end up with children which are the fruit of making love. The loving fruit, who are going to then go out and fill the earth with that, with the love of God and with this communion. This is how you extend your loving communion. We are, we are born in the likeness of our parents. R.L. Dabney wrote this, an extended quote here. It is enough for us to know that God, by uh, his mysterious works of creation and providence, does empower human parents for this amazing result. The origination, out of nothing, of a new being, and that a rational, immortal spirit. How solemn, how high this prerogative It raises man nearer the Almighty Creator in his supreme prerogative as master of all things than anything else that is done by creatures on earth or in heaven. Angels are not thus endued. The responsibility of this relation is not fully seen by merely regarding the infant as a beautiful animal organized in miniature after the kind of the parent's. It is the mysterious propagation of a rational soul that fills the reflecting mind with awe. The parent looks upon the tender face which answers to his caress with an infantile smile. He he should see beneath that smile an immortal spark which has been kindled but can never be quenched. It must grow for weal or for woe. It cannot be arrested. Just now, it was not. The parents have mysteriously brought it from darkness and nothing. There is no power beneath God's throne that can remand it back to nothing should existence prove a curse. Yes, the parents have lighted there an everlasting lamp which must burn burn on when the sun shall have turned into darkness and the moon into blood, either with the glory of heaven or the lurid flame of despair. Powerful stuff. As We as parents, this power we've been given. You create, you name, and you rule. That's as powerful as it gets. In addition to being, in addition to the loving communion that you have with one another... Again, the two become one. 
you're also called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers who will also, again, live in loving communion. It is your job to train them and to teach them how to do that. They aren't born knowing how to do that. Remember, they're born uh, with a sinful nature. You pass that on to them, and now you're going to bring them to the remedy. And so uh, the mission always involves multiple generations. Of course, sin has complicated this, and thus it is now critical that they also be brought to the church, that is, to the body of Christ. They need to be baptized and set apart. They need to be made holy. They need the remedy of the gospel if they are to fulfill what they are created for, which is the glory of God and for the good of the world. Again, Dabney summarizes it this way. Thus, Satan saw that humanity had but one head, Adam. By poisoning this, he would taint all the vast future body with spiritual death. Thus he vainly hoped he would usurp that very power, the power of parentage, which God had bestowed to be the instrument of multiplying blessedness, and he would turn it into an inlet of spreading and boundless sin and misery. By poisoning the springhead, he would at once poison the whole stream and all of its widening course until it disembogued its innumerable drops, each drop in a flood of... Uh, in the flood, a lost soul, into the ocean of eternity. Thus it, was, uh, thus it is that we owe to this malignant perversion of God's plan of benevolence that every parent now transmits to the child he loves, along with the gift of existence, the deadly disease of sin. He continues, these, then, are the two facts which give so unspeakable a solemnity to the parent's relation to his child. He has conferred on them, unasked, the endowment of an endless, responsible existence. He has also been the instrument, if the unwilling, yet the sole instrument of conveying to this new existence the taint of original sin and guilt. Can the human mind conceive a motive more tender, more dreadful, more urgent, prompting a parent to seek for the beloved souls he has poisoned, the aid of the great physician. How can you, O Christian, fail to bring your child to the great physician of souls to be healed of the deadly contagion you have conveyed to him? The role of father is simply an extension of the role of husband. The husband is totally responsible for all the members of the household. He is the husband to his wife, who is, who is uh, his household helper. The husband takes the additional responsibility when he begets children into the covenant household. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, God brings an indictment against his people for having broken their covenant with him. And among other offenses, he charges the men with having violated their household covenant toward their wives and toward their children. Here's what he says, Malachi 2. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, for weeping and, uh, with weeping and crying. So he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, 
For what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously, yet she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously or unfaithfully. God concludes his indictment against his people with this warning. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will do what? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. So the only way for society, that is the earth, to avoid God's covenant curse is for the covenant household to be restored in all of its proper biblical relationships. Faithful husbands and godly fathers doing their duty toward God and fulfilling their responsibilities toward their family. God has never required more than that, and he's never required any less than that. Men, that is your job, period. Everything else is in service of that. Your career, whatever money you make, whatever you use with your free time, everything you do is oriented toward promoting that. Faithful husbands and godly fathers Again, doing their job. You'll recall that God's covenant with Abraham was conditioned upon such covenant faithfulness. Abraham was to command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice. And so, uh, I've mentioned this before, but uh, you imagine this old man, this old woman, Abraham and Sarah, they're going to have, have, end up having this one child, Isaac, and God says, through him, I'm going to bless the whole world. And God asks rhetorically, should I tell Abraham what I'm going to do? And he does. And he says, I'm going to bless the whole world. Your descendants are going to multiply. And you imagine Abraham thinking, "How how is he going to do that? And what do I need to do? This is a pretty big project. Saving the world. And God says, I want you to go home. I want you to go home and teach your wife and your children to follow me. That's all I want you to do. I'll do the rest. If you'll do that, I'll take care of the world. You take care of your family. You take care of your property, your animal. All of that's mine now. But you make sure you not just instruct, but he says command your household to keep the way of the Lord. And I think we lack some of that sometimes. We have this kind of passive, soft Christian fatherhood sometimes. And it ought to be tender and affectionate, as I've said, and all that. That's not, we're not talking about harshness here. We are talking about resolution. Self-conscious implementation of what God's called you to do and doing it diligently. And so, 
Under Moses, God's people were required to diligently instruct their children in the commands of God as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then you shall diligently teach your children. Throughout redemptive history, God's covenant blessings or covenant curses come upon his people based upon their faithfulness or unfaithfulness, specifically of fathers toward their children and children toward their fathers. The New Testament begins with the fulfilling of the promise that God made at the close of the Old Testament to send a prophet to call for repentance. And so God revealed to the father of John the Baptist, Zacharias, that his son... Uh, would be the Elijah that was promised. And so the pro- uh, he would be the prophet who restored men to covenant faithfulness. So in Luke chapter 1, remember the Old Testament has closed, saying I'm going to send the prophet Elijah. Luke chapter 1, the angel appears to Zacharias, says I'm going to, you're going to have a son, and here's what he's going to do. He will also go before him, that is Christ, in the spirit and power of Elijah. And he quotes from Malachi, the, the angel does to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children this and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so at the very heart of the purpose to redeem sinners is the relationship between fathers and their children. As I've already said, this is not a footnote to God's plan for his people. It, is not only, uh, it not only is central to the immediate work of God in the lives of individuals and households, it is vital to the long-term perpetuation of the kingdom of God from generation to generation and to the redemption of the whole earth. Everything else should be in service of that goal. You should rise every morning and remind yourself of your mission. Now, I have not deliberately left mothers out of this discussion. But from a biblical perspective, fathers and mothers are one. Nevertheless, the primary responsibility for producing the loving communion that God calls for, uh, God calls for a rest with husbands and fathers. The wife, as helper, comes under that mission. Together they are called to fill the earth with godly offspring. So we have this command to fathers, but it's interesting we don't have a command to mothers regarding children. There's no specific command in the Bible that I'm aware of that says this is what mothers are to do. All the responsibility is laid upon the father. But because the wife is one with the father, the two have become one, and she is there to help him with the mission. So you think about it, he's the commander. He's given the mission to raise godly children. She's his helper. She comes in submission. She comes under the mission to help him do the same. So he begets children, and she gives him children. That's biblical language. What's he do after he gets them? They've been given to him by her. Now he's responsible for them, and she's going to help him. Now, when the Bible talks about children, children are to look at father and mother. They don't look at, well, father's up here and mother's down here. They're to see them as exactly the same. Honor your father and your mother. They are one. They are the same. 
and you owe the same responsibility, the same respect, the same duties to, to both parents, but the primary responsibility for seeing that it's done is with fathers. Children, your parents stand in the place of God. They are your creators. They are your rulers. They are your saviors. They provide for you. They instruct you. They protect you. God put them to stand in his place in your life. Or at least they should be all these things. And so when you resist your parents, when you're disobedient to parents, when you're disrespectful to parents, you're also disobedient and disrespectful to God. Now, as Adam named the animals that he ruled over, so too parents name their children. Names identify us with communities and with roles. We have several kinds of names. So, for example, you are a son or a daughter. That's a name, a title. You're part of a family, and so you have a surname. You have the last name. You are an individual, so you have a given name. And you are a Christian. You receive the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in baptism. You've been set apart, so you are a Christian. You are part of the body of Christ. All of these names define who you are, and they point to a variety of things. This morning, later this morning, in a few minutes, we'll be baptizing the hammocks, uh, LaVisa and the children. Some of them have really long names. Uh, I haven't really had a chance to talk with them about what all those are. I know some of them, maybe most of them, are family names, right? So there's connection. This was Grandpa's name or somebody, so there's a, a family connection. So that it identifies us in a particular way uh, because some of their na- the names of their children have... Uh, LaVisa is from Icelandic background, so they have a connection with where they came from. So the name... Helps help you know when you hear those names that maybe you haven't heard before. You know what kind of name is that? That's usually a, a question we might ask. Is that a family name or is that a particular ethnic name? Uh, it provides some sense of identity. So we know if your name is Bubba, you're from East Texas, right? Um, so um, we uh, names. We're always curious when we hear a name to know what what is its origin, what is its meaning, what is how does it help us identify this person, and um, and so parents have that power to name. All of these names define who you are and point, again, to a variety of things. So, for example, at my house, to be a booth means any number of things, including we go to church, we don't curse, we show respect to others, we uh, show hospitality, we tithe, and much more. That's what it means to be a booth. That's who we are. It's not just what we do, it's who we are. 
Such things should be clear at your house as well. Who, who are we and what do we do? And, uh, and what do we not do? That's part of defining. This is your identity, and God gave you parents to help shape that identity in Christ. You shouldn't just be making all that up, by the way. God's Word should direct you as followers of Jesus. What do you want our family to be? You, you define what it is to be a booth, and then we'll make sure our kids learn that, get that. And so this, by the way, this will happen whether you do it self-consciously or not. It's one of those unavoidable things, uh, inevitable. Um, and so you have both nature and inheritance. You were born with a certain nature, a sin nature and a biological nature, but you also receive, kids, an inheritance. You receive a nurture. You receive a culture. You might also receive a physical inheritance. You might inherit money, a house, land. In tracing my family tree, I found that the covenant was far more powerful of an influence than biology. And so when the, when the tree split due to adoption, there's a biological branch and then there was the covenantal branch. Which one had the greater influence? And I certainly saw over and over, thankfully, the covenant had the greater influence. It clearly overrode any biological issues. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Parents are called to love their children as the father loves the son. That's the standard. Starting with their hearts being turned toward their children. And in that then comes doctrine, which is teaching, and discipline. That's my job. Another way to put it is I'm to teach them the things they're supposed to know about God and about life. And I am to discipline, that is, I'm to enforce that. These are not suggestions. These are not uh, just things I'm throwing out for an option for them. I am going to insist that these things be upheld. You are going to go to church, and you are going to do these other things. You're going to speak respectfully. You are going to do this. That is part of the job, is not just setting the standard, but enforcing the standard. Why? Because it's seeking their good. Instruction and training by words and example, and then, of course, compassion, affection, grace, mercy. All of that's part of it. Why? Because that's how the Father loves us, right? That's the standard. We don't just pick out pieces of this. It's all of this. Children are called by God to love their parents. Love means sacrifice. That means giving. How? As the son loves the father. That's the standard for children. The heart of Jesus' relationship to his father has always been one of love and obedience. He was obedient to take on the form of a slave, Philippians 2, and this is the life Paul has commended uh, for us to imitate. You children say, you mean I'm a slave of my parents? Yes, you're a servant. They're your boss. You work for them. That's how it works. You know why? Because God loves you. 
Now, let me give my disclaimer here. I know that in a fallen world, there are some really awful, sinful, wicked parents. And we have to deal with those situations as they come up. So I'm not saying that there are no situations where children need to be taken out of a home or put somewhere else because of abusive parents. Certainly that's the case, and that's sad. But if you've been born into a Christian home with parents who love you, are they perfect? No, that's not the issue. Perfection, and you should, be, you should recognize that yourself, because I assure you, you're not either. But in a godly home, parents are there to boss you, to be your Lord, to represent God to you, and you're there to learn how to be a servant, because that's maybe the most important thing you're going to need in your life, is to learn how to serve, because service is love. And you can't possibly go on to have a loving communion of your own if you haven't learned how to sacrifice for others. Jesus was also clear about the relationship of love and obedience. John 15, 9 and 10. As the Father loved me, I also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And by the way, your parents are your servants too because they sacrifice for you way more than you imagine. They love you. They would die for you. They work for you. They feed you. They protect you. They clothe you. They educate you. They pray for you. They weep for you. They're afraid for you. They discipline you. Why? Because they love you. The hearts of children are turned toward their fathers and mothers um, because parents love first. We, we love because they first loved us. And, and you owe your parents love. All right, we're going to stop there for this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for helping us understand the things that are broken in this world and sin. And we're thankful that you provided a remedy for us in Christ for the gospel that we can begin to repair and rebuild and redeem. So help us as fathers to indeed have our hearts turned toward our children. And as mothers as well, may we work together as husband and wife, as father and mother, to raise children to the glory of God. And I pray for all the children here, the young people, uh, that you would give them hearts toward their parents to love, to submit, and to delight in the fact that you've given them parents that love them and care for them. May, they, may we not be rebels at any point here. We pray your blessing now in Jesus' name. Amen.